What's up, polo people? Welcome to the Northside Polo Podcast, your one-stop shop for everything bike polo, laughing, and fun times. I'm here with my friends and teammates, Alex. I'm back. Oh, I just spiked my audio there, but yeah, I'm I'm back from my my much away trip, and it feels great to sit here and talk about bike polo again. I am so excited. And Liam. Yo. And of course, I'm your host, Gavin. I forgot to mention that. All right, let's jump right into it. I got something I really want to talk about today, guys. But before I get to that, we have to do the news first. So I'll start off with the first nobody bit wants of the to talk about here. the news. The news? Yeah, nobody wants to talk about the news. Well, let's just get it done and get out of the way so we can get to the good stuff. So first things first. Uh, last weekend we had the Heckler's Alley solo polo event. Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, the computing power was not quite enough to sustain the multi-live stream event we wanted to have. So it's being rescheduled, but I received word from Heckler's Alley that this Saturday coming, they're going to be recording something and editing it and making an amazing product to put out to us so that we can watch it on our leisure we don't have to tune in live so that'll be really exciting when that comes out i'm really hyped to see all the tricks and uh different skills in play i might even how did it go for you i'm not sure how did it go for you gavin you were a part of that right i was i didn't get on camera it kind of uh just never got to me so the difficulties hit before my bracket started so ah next time you know i don't know if i'll be able to do it this weekend but if i am there i look forward to uh doing it and being a part of it next on the news who wants to get this piece uh i can on a more serious note i guess polo in montreal has been suspended due to increasing covid19 cases and uh i don't think we're far off here in ontario um as we've been seeing a big increase in the amount of cases happening and uh it's it's entirely possible might be the end of the season as we know it but personally i'm pretty happy with what we got in this summer um just for clarification montreal also got in trouble for playing too much polo prior to the outbreak yes well they were, like they were apparently people were complaining that bike polo was hogging the court and they played literally every day of the week <laughs> I mean that's unheard that's, of in uh, most clubs. Right? So, <laughs> what are these? It's mad pretty lads amazing when you think about where Montreal was a few years back, where they were having trouble getting six, and now they have so many players. They have to spread out their playing over so many days. Like that club is amazing, and we're gonna have to have someone off from that club just to talk about rookie recruitment and how they did this because the turnaround is astonishing. Absolutely. All right, third item. Third item, uh, yes. Uh, so the Worlds, um, which happened last year in Cordoba, Argentina, um, they've been uploading a lot of footage. Well, either, rather, they've edited down the um, games from last year, and they've been posting it on their YouTube page, which is Cordoba Bike Polo. Um, so be sure to check out the games from last year because they're nice and edited down. You don't have to watch the entire live stream. You can get the entire game uh, just in that YouTube video. So... I don't know about you guys, but I've been watching those, uh, you know, over the last few days and taking notes it. and all that stuff. It's been awesome. Yeah, the quality. You know what I've been really appreciating? Amazing. I've been appreciating more sugar. That team is awesome. Like, yeah, 
in the live stream i didn't watch all their games but now that they're editing them out and watching them like i'm watching these guys are amazing players hats off to diego pete and um aaron for being a part of that team and it's just amazing watching them play such strong fundamentals of course every team in that tournament is flipping amazing i just was really uh pleasantly surprised watching their games personally check them out yeah they have one game I mean, against prende as... la mira which goes like ot it's incredible yeah and pete yeah. my heart breaks for you that was the semi-final right that uh, I think so. The, that that final was shot. pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so now let's get into this. Okay, this I guess this is like our warm up to our main event. We got a special guest on today, obviously, but uh, something just really bothered me last week, and I really just want to get it off my chest. Okay, so real talk. I remember being a rookie and getting my first fixed craft mallet and people telling me all kinds of different things. Oh yeah, it goes to your tailbone. It should be the same height as your saddle height. It should be the length of your arm and a half, all these different things. And you know, this week I'm watching the world's coverage from these videos from Cordoba and I'm looking at the mallets and the mongrels have long, long mallets, like way longer than any of these traditional measurements that I was told as a rookie. So I go to rookie night this two weeks ago and I see someone instructing a rookie on how to cut their mallet, right? And it's like, okay, well, you're a shorter player, so you might want to have a shorter mallet. And I'm just going to put it out there, guys. I think this is completely bogus. There is no way to size a mallet based on your body dimensions, okay? It's all about personal preference, touch, and feel. It's got nothing to do with your size. Boom. Yeah. I, I I agree to that. I will say having a short mallet makes it a lot easier to stick handle the ball when it's beside your bike. So, which is where I think a lot of the time when people are first beginning at bike polo, a lot of the time they're not confidently reaching over their handlebars. They're stick handling beside them and a shorter mallet makes it easier to do that. So I can see the argument for new players erring on the side of giving them a shorter mallet. It's also lighter and easier to stick handle, but I definitely think that uh, there's a lot of advantages from having a long mallet once you get used to it. And clearly the mongrels are reaping all of them. Yeah. My personal take is like the longer you can make your mallet and still control it, make it as long as you can within the rules. Like I'd honestly, if I'm teaching a rookie, I'd be like, start long and trim it down until you're ready to go. You know what I mean? Just like, cause the longer you can have it, the better it's going to give you more reach on defense. It's going to give you more bell handling abilities. As long as you're coordinated and strong enough to manipulate that mallet, the longer, the better. And I also started thinking about like body dimensions on people and like your arm length is directly related to how tall you are for most people. Now, what that means is that when you stand and your arms hang at your sides, most people's arms hang rough, like where their hand placement is, is roughly the same distance from the ground as everyone else because the arm is relational to the length of their body. So the height off the ground, if their arms hang that same distance, it makes it the same. So it doesn't make sense for a taller player to have a way longer mallet than a shorter player because the taller player also has longer arms helping them get lower to the ground with that kind of stance. So I just think it's completely bogus. Please mail in your takes on this, what you think. If you think I'm dead wrong, please let me know why. But I just think we got to stop telling new players to have mallets that are relational to their size. Because it's dead wrong. Longer the yeah, it's better. It's relational to your wheel size. Don't even get me started on wheel size. You know I'm already hot. <laughs> Alex, why do you take it away to the next segment? The listeners are waiting for that, obviously. We'll hear their feedback on the mallet size thing in the emails. Okay, so this week we have an 
absolutely amazing guest uh, that I am wouldn't honestly would not want to cover this topic without. Uh, it is Elias, the former president of North American Hardcore Bike Polo Association, the current treasurer, and honestly a bastion of reason in 2020 on my social media. Uh, just putting out hot takes, but like from a from a place of reason. Well thought out um, takes, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Elias puts not only puts in his not only puts in their time um, to get the make the right calls in terms of what's best for bike polo as a whole, but also on their their political stance. Uh, they definitely go to that extra effort. Hey, Elias, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, well, I'm in six and a half months of. Uh, working from home so a little stir crazy a little bit of cabin fever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think there's a lot of people out a, there. a lot like a lot honestly a lot uh, of, of that yeah. yeah 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 i i'm uh i'm very much uh an extrovert so being home this much is 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 painful painful to my being and um <laughs> and uh like I used to lament the feeling of coming home from a bike polo tournament on Sunday, then going to work on Monday and having that, you know, hashtag big Monday, uh, depression. But now mm. I would, oh God, I would do anything for that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all in that boat. Yeah. There's no doubt. Like we've been missing tournaments so much on this podcast and even missing pickup and the quality of the pickup mm. we've been having, if we have it is just not the same because there's yeah. always that back of your mind anxiety around COVID-19. Absolutely. And it's just been a sad time for everyone in the pole world. For sure. I'm wondering, Elias, um, in your neck of the woods, you're on the East end, uh, East side, East coast of the state. So what's the state of bike pole like out there? So Eastside has a number of clubs and like right now, uh, not a lot of activity uh, going on Eastside. And that's pretty structural. With COVID, it hit the United States in on the East Coast in large metropolitan areas most heavily. And so I think the clubs in the Eastside region from the, you know, very beginning were very sensitive to the idea of no one wants to be the club that is like, uh, you know, has the out, has an outbreak. Um, some point during middle of summer, a few clubs have kind of, uh, you know, done some like light pickup. And I think um, uh, at least Boston and New York have, have got, have, have got back to at least week weekly or, you know, every other week play uh, and they're playing with masks and they've kind of figured out their own kind of like, standard operational procedures for comfort and safety of members of the club down in DC where I'm at. Uh, we haven't got back to full pickup yet. Um, we have a large club. We certainly have numbers, but again, everyone's mostly just kind of erring on the side of caution. And so social stuff for Polo, uh, our Polo community here has been more like, um, like a porch happy hour or go to a, a outdoor park and do like a, uh, you know, like socially distant sort of like social, you know, hangouts. Uh, we have gone to the polo court a few times and just played like shootout and stuff like that. No, uh, all non-contact bike polo so that we can still have the thrill of, of, uh, riding around on a bike and swinging a plastic hammer. Uh, but 
uh, none of the uh, potential, well, fewer of the potential liabilities uh, for health and safety. So, so we haven't got back to that. And I, and I think at some point there's probably going to be a discussion on, on uh, you know, what benchmarks for public health we're looking at to reinitiate uh, a more regular schedule. And I think a lot of clubs are, are, are in a similar kind of like holding pattern. Yeah, it seems to be the conversation that's unfolding everywhere to, to some extent or another. And we, we're having with the second wave in uh, Canada, specifically in Ontario, I think a lot of clubs in North Sides are having that discussion as well. I, I, I'm glad for it. Honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm really proud of the bipolar community. No one's arm really needed to be twisted to be considerate and thoughtful of of clubs. I, most clubs took this initiative on their own, um, even with like, cities sometimes like making it pretty explicit, like, hey, parks are closed. But parks reopened, and it wasn't like clubs just immediately pretended like there wasn't a pandemic. I, I think people have been very responsible, and I, I, I think that's 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 really good. Yeah, I mean, it's been tough. I think a lot of different clubs are approaching it pretty differently, but I agree with you, Elias, that there's been a lot of respectful conversation had, especially in you know the north side region where we're from, Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Kitchener. There's been a lot of conversations. Do we play a poll with masks? Do we play a poll without masks? And we were really lucky in this region of the world just to have this summer have relatively low numbers. And so mm-hmm. a lot of clubs were able to play polo almost as usual. Now that the fall's come, it seems like since September, things have really been ramping up around here. And we've unfortunately seen a few changes like Montreal. Now it's illegal to play bike polo there. And Ottawa and Toronto are probably going to follow suit pretty soon. Um, hmm. But hopefully, you know, over the winter, something changes and we can get back to doing what we love next summer in a big way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a, a time, a time off to put your polo energy into to other little things. Uh, speaking of polo energy, can you tell us about yourself and bike polo? Yeah. So, um, I have been playing bike polo since uh, April of 2011. So I'm I'm about a nine-year player at this point, and. I picked up bike polo very, very uh, shortly after getting back into bikes as an adult. Now, I hadn't had a bike in my college years, and so it wasn't until I moved to D.C. and was getting around, I bought like a single-speed bike, and I wanted to learn some like fixed-gear tricks, like track standing and stuff, so I took myself to YouTube and YouTube's algorithm starts turning out like, hey, check out this, check out this. And one of the videos that had me check out was bike polo in New York City. And so it was really cool. I was like, this is amazing. And I happen to be going to New York City that weekend uh, to go see a play on, on Broadway with my uh, partner. And I said to her, hey, this is really close to where the buses pick up downtown. Can we go check this out on a Sunday? I went, I watched it, at bike polo at the pit, um, <laughs> and yeah, was, blown, was blown away by it. I was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. I uh, got on social media on the bus ride home and was just like talking about it. And um, I had a friend locally who said, oh, they play in D.C. as well. And so before I even made it back to D.C., I contacted the local club and, you know, <laughs> nine years later, playing twice a week. And I've been um 
all around the world playing. I've gone to you know multiple world championships, multiple North American championships. Um, I've done various uh, you know travel around the world and brought my bike with me and met players and had this awesome uh, life experience so far. And I'm I still got plenty left, uh, plenty of uh, steam left in me to to have more adventure. I feel like you've probably been more deeply involved personally with some of the organization behind bike polo than a lot of the other guests we've had. Um, like you were the former president of the hardcore association. Yes. So I, I, uh, I did a, like a two and a half year stint as the uh, president of uh, the NAH. And currently I am the treasurer and uh, that's partially out of convenience. The NAH is registered uh, as a nonprofit here in the district of Columbia and actually so we just use my home address um, for all the legal filing stuff with our uh, with the IRS, uh, American t- you know, Tax Bureau. So, so you're the heart and soul of North American hardcore bike polo. I I have I I'm a I'm a piece I'm a piece of the connective tissue uh, for sure. <laughs> um, and so you know I, I I carry with me some of the institutional knowledge uh, that has been a part of the different people who've worked with the NAH from 2014 till the present. Well, I'm very grateful for the YouTube algorithm for getting you into this community. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. For sure. I know, I know Alex and I went down and did NAs in Milwaukee and you were organizing that tournament down there or one of the head organizers, I'd say. Um, And it was an outstanding tournament. I mean, just the coordination of three courts, so many um, opinionated players on the courts um, you did an outstanding job and it really was an amazing experience for us in our first international polo tournament, right? On that kind of stage. Uh, well, I'm glad you had a great time there. That was a great tournament. Uh, all, all the praise should go to the local club, um, Milwaukee. And then, um, from the shadows, even though he was not present, he was running the tournament remotely. Uh, Mark Ossetine from East Van Bike Polo. He is the tournament director of the NAH, and he was, even though he wasn't at NAs, running all of the online stuff to keep all the brackets running from afar, which is a, an impressive feat. Um, so, so I mean, obviously the people there were making sure things ran, all the refs, all the different people at the different courts, um, you know, and, and volunteers. But um, yeah, hats hats go off. If, I'm glad you had a, a good time at that tournament. That was a, that was a great tournament. Um, and, uh, yeah. Would, would I be mistaken for saying that you were also the captain of one of the most well-dressed polo squads, the Kniffies? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, I will say, yes, I am, I'm the, uh, uh, I am the captain of Knives, um, which is a, a, a fun time, a fun, t- is a fun time. Yeah, try, try, trying to do something with bike polo that, like, you know, it should should be like a team that should be easy and fun to cheer for um, uh, or get positive heckles out of people. Yeah, who doesn't um, love knives? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we always, spell, we always spell the name different every tournament um, <laughs> is kind of like the running gag. And, and the vaporwave aesthetic, which oh, yeah. holds it down. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, Elias, one of the things that I remember most 
clearly from that tournament is you refing a lot, a lot of games. Do you find that you often take on that role of tournaments? I do. Um, and I, for the most part, largely enjoy it. There's definitely been tournaments where I leave and more exhausted from refing than from playing, uh, which could also just me needing more <laughs> practice so I'm in the tournament bracket longer. But uh, <laughs> it's also that I, I enjoy doing it because sometimes when I'm not the ref and I'm watching, I'm frustrated uh, by different things I see. And I also, I have to empathize because I know some people, you know, that's, that's the case of anyone watching anyone ref. That's, that's largely the case of people watching me ref. I mean, you don't always see everything, but it's, it's a small measure of control that I, I uh, like to have. It's, uh, it's also a vantage point of attention on a match that I personally enjoy. I'm, I'm seeing a lot more of what happens when I'm putting myself in the uh, ref mindset to, uh, to see a match and see really high-level play. So um, especially in those quarterfinal and on matches, I've done a lot of the end-of-bracket refing where uh, some of the high-level play is, is really coming out of, of some of our greatest players. Well, as probably one of the least liked refs in Northsides, I have nothing but admiration for people that are able to do it well and keep both sides happy because that is an art that I have not figured out. Oh, the trick is that you you don't care if either side is happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Every time someone says, anyone need a ref? I just kind of like duck down behind the boards and like, we need a ref on this court. I duck down behind the boards and usually try to hide in some level in our region. People often call my name cause they know I've been playing a while, but uh, I go out of my way to avoid being a ref because I find it so difficult and so anxiety provoking. So my hats go out to all sure. the people like just great job. Everyone that's ever volunteered to be a ref at a polo tournament. It's a thankless job. A lot of times, and it's so important because these rules are really hard to officiate in a lot of cases. Sure. At least in my well, experience. And, 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 I, and I think one of the things that is misunderstood about refing itself is refing isn't some like academic understanding of a PDF full of rules. It's another skill that has to be practiced, just like any other thing. So if you want to be good at refing, you got to ref more. And just like playing bike polo, when you first start playing, you're not necessarily good at it. And once you practice more, you get better at it. Same thing's going to be with refing. So encouraging new people to take up that role is really helpful in building confidence and also kind of training the eye and what you're looking for on the court. Yeah, it's really it's really hard. I've somehow managed to blow every single elimination game that I that I ref it's uh yeah you, you you the players or the refs of your caliber definitely make it look easy and uh for anyone that's done it it's they know that it's not well i appreciate that uh well with that discussion of of refing um i do want to move into sort of the topic of this episode which is the obstruction rule um and we'll talk about that a little bit more um well obviously it is the the topic but one of the disclaimers i kind of wanted to put in uh and this is from john hayes who's also i think one of the more uh respected refs certainly from the north sides region um <clears throat> and his his take is usually that it's more important to make a call than necessarily making the right call like knowing when to blow the whistle is often more important than 
naming the right rule or saying the right thing or sort of, um, you know, having, like you were saying, that academic understanding of a PDF. I, I agree uh, largely. And John is definitely one of those people who he's been refing, he, he refed before before me. And he's definitely um, one of those people who who I've enjoyed refing with alongside. And I think we have a lot of similar philosophy on that. One of the things um, that I kind of like, kind of uh, side by side with him on that is, you know, a lot of times a ref will blow a whistle and then it's, what's the call? What's the call immediately? And so a lot of refs feel anxiety that they're going to have to immediately go into this public speaking role. And sometimes it's better just to blow the whistle, take a moment, talk with your scorekeeper or something like that. So I saw, think about what you're going to say and then say it. Sometimes people are just so feeling of this like, you know, adrenaline rush. I got to say something immediately. You can slow down. You can think about it for a second, but you knew what you saw was bogus or heinous. You blew the whistle, and it's time to make the call. So yeah, I I I, I do I do agree with 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 John Hayes. I think he's got a great um, game and ref instinct uh, with with the spirit of what you're trying to do. You're officiating the match. You are there to make sure it's controlled and it's fair, uh, first and foremost. And you use the rules as a tool to uh to best achieve that goal and and i think you've also been responsible in your time as the nah president for shooting down some of the best innovations on those rules coming out of the north sides region uh for not being in the spirit of the game (laughs) (laughs) i'd have to know an example (laughs) Uh, well i I remember coming to that milwaukee tournament yeah we uh in milwaukee we kept coming to you with like uh the idea, what was it, the lobster trap or um, <laughs> some of these? The peg leg. The peg leg, yeah, the peg leg. Um, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that. Oh, I remember that conversation. <laughs> I do remember that conversation. <laughs> we plastered the internet with those. I don't, know what the lob- I don't know what the lobster trap is, and I actually don't want you to tell me because my mind, <laughs> my imagination is going fucking wild right now. Can I cu- curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah, you oh, can. excellent. Yeah my, yeah, my mind is absolutely going berserk trying to think of what a lobster trap could be. But I'm always <laughs> coming up with weird names. I know. Yeah, but I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got me all excited. But, Oh, yeah. I said fuck a moment ago, so, you know. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me what it yeah. is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to, whenever pickup goes, I'm going to go do what I think a lobster trap is, and then I'll send a video to you to see, and you can yes. tell me if that's what it is. <laughs> well, I'll give you a hint. You're going to need more than just yourself to do a lobster trap. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a team maneuver. It's a coordinated it's a effort. Is it legal in Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Is I, that's the real clue I need to know. <laughs> um, so I, I guess one of the things, uh, just like getting into obstruction, um, it's not a rule anymore. That's so correct. That's, yeah. that's, that's a good first thing to, t- to, to tell people because it, it was one of the first super complex technical penalties and everyone got used to the word and now it's we've removed it from the language of the rule set. <laughs> So but every time you're at a tournament and the referee says obstruction, they're wrong, and you should tell the ref that they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's going to really frustrate the ref, uh, even if what they're calling is the right thing to call, just to, just to raise your finger and wag it and say, well, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In fact, if, if someone did that to me and they were totally right, I would nod and be like, you're right. 
uh, two minute penalty. <laughs> we're talking yeah. back to the rest. That that is yeah. obscene. <laughs> so. Okay, you are you are correct. This is actually an interference call, but also now it's a major. <laughs> yeah, that's it's right. actually uh, worse if you're right about the rules. I feel like that antagonizes the ref even further. I mean, you know, there, it's like a it's interesting. Yeah, you know, there there are definitely times. Uh, I, I try not to take too much from players in terms of like feedback into trying to influence a call, uh, especially if a player is not the captain on a team. I think that's tacky. Uh, but uh, usually if someone asks for a clarification on a call, that's, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, <laughs> and so like, yeah, I, I, me, I, I still find myself sometimes out of reflex referring to uh, interference as obstruction um, just cause that's whenever I learned, uh, the kind of, you know, bones of this rule. Well, I that's when it became illegal, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was called like the contact that we're talking about used to be legal in polo. Yeah. Um, and the sort of pre-obstruction era is actually how I always think of it. Cause when Gavin and I started playing, it was the first year that obstruction was added to the rules. And nobody in Ottawa knew what that was. And I kept telling people they were obstructing and they're like, I don't even know what that means. Um, (laughs) And I think for most players that actually followed sort of tournaments and NAH rules and tried to keep up with the modern rule book, uh, obstruction is the word that we were taught to use for sort of this off ball interference. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty around around the board for a lot of, there's a generation of, of players that came about before obstruction who are still around, who, who still had that association even now. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I guys, did... what, what is obstruction? Wait. I feel like we're talking all about it. Like, is it now called interference? Is that what we're getting at? Yes. So, so hmm. bike interference is a technical penalty. It's under uh, section section seven of the uh current rule set for nah and and i should also note um i'm not super up to date on the european rule set and i do believe that they have a slightly different interpretation on interference um especially when it pertains to uh interference involving a mallet um so uh, you may want to reach out to them uh, yeah. to know a little bit more about some different international play uh, rules and standards when it comes to interference. But but I can give you the, the North American perspective on the rule. I mean, this is the North Sides Polo podcast, so we're kind of reaching out of our region already by talking to the NAH. <laughs> going, going all the way to Europe <laughs> is going to be a, a, a bit of a stretch. But actually, based on the viewer analytics, there are a lot of people from Europe, even... Um, folks specifically from Europe asking us to do like, when is the obstruction oh, very episode cool. coming out? That's so cool. uh, we, we definitely, it's good to know. I actually didn't even realize there was a difference between North American obstruction and European obstruction. So unfortunately I don't have anything prepared on that, but that's definitely something to don't worry. To. I, like I said, I can't really speak. I, I wouldn't be authoritative to speak on, on the, the Euro rule set. Um, I kind of know what they're trying to achieve with their interpretation, but it's, it's definitely a di- slightly different spirit than what uh, we have uh, in the NAH rule set. So, um, so interference itself, here's what I tell uh, a player when I'm trying to trying to explain it to them, which is that on the court, there's a mess. 
and the mess can come to you, but you can't get in the mess. And what I mean by that, when I'm training players, is essentially that there's somebody in possession of the ball, and you've got a friend who wants to take that ball from them, and combined, they are the mess. They're the action where it's happening. Now, you really want to go help your friend super, super bad, and you could do that... Um, Sorry, your friends wanted the ball, so I didn't mean to make that confusing. <laughs> it's um, easier that um, way, yeah, yeah. It is yeah. It is a very confusing subject, and that's why yes. we're having... Yes. That's why we've brought the you expert really, in to talk about it. You really want to help your friend with the ball, and he's being bullied by some awful, awful defender. And uh, so that's the mess. And uh, you can't go and get involved in the mess, but the mess can come to you. And so this is me usually not so much training people on what interference is, but training people on what a legal screen is and what a legal mm-hmm. pick is. And so, you know, I try to teach uh, players in my club, hey, your teammate can use you if you're stationary or if you're holding a, uh, a straight line of play. Uh, they can scrape off the defender, so to speak, off of you. Mm-hmm. But you can't go involve yourself in to, you know, get in the way of that uh defenders so that they can't challenge your buddy and that's usually the kind of like not going into the language of the rule but going into the spirit of what's being what's occurring on Mm. the court and that's usually how i begin with the explanation so if i start there then i could start getting into language and more specifics like that's just riding around what does it mean whenever you're doing interference with your body or with a mallet and that's where things get a little bit more in the weeds on the details but that's usually where i start i think the i think the key point that i would just say definitively as like a black and white statement about obstruction or interference if you're defending someone who has the ball you cannot get a penalty for interfering with them there there's kind there's types of illegal contact but you are allowed to get in their way absolutely yeah, you, you are. It's called a, defense. Yeah, it's called. Yeah, that, that's that's <laughs> that's good defense. And I think the, the I mean, defining it in terms of uh, the rule set, the very first thing in the rule is that the player who's not in possession of the ball is entitled entitled to attempt a fair play on the ball or the ball carrier. So that's what you're saying right there, mm-hmm. out out the gate. I have the right to. I don't have to just let you try to get a goal. I, I have the right to defend. I have the right to challenge the person with the ball. And everything so, from, goes after that. Yeah, because there's, there's a lot of, uh, and admittedly, the rules, the wording has been less clear and has been changed a lot. But th- I've heard a lot of people call obstruction on players for like taking someone's line or other things where that player has the ball. That is just allowed. That is definitely not obstruction. If you're if you're getting in the way of someone on the other team with the ball, you are absolutely entitled to do that. Correct. Yeah. I, I mean. Yeah. Exactly. So, I think what happens there is you can absolutely take the line. Now, now you could get a different type of penalty. You could get a bike oh, handling penalty or mount handling penalty, but the penalty wouldn't be interference. The penalty yeah, would you be can't something dangerously else. take someone out. That's not, we're not advocating that here, but exactly. Yeah. Good. (laughs) You're allowed to get in their way. Good clarification. Exactly. You, you're paying aggressive defense in that situation and things can get a little hairy. Sure. But if you're the ball carrier, it is 
absolutely fair that you should assume that people are going to want to make it to 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 get in your way that's that's yeah. that's what you're supposed to design your offense around is that people are going to make it difficult for you to move the ball down the court and get into uh, a scoring situation and so you know based off that yes you're going to have defenders get in your way <laughs> and uh, and and that's not always going to happen at the distance of of feet that's sometimes going to happen at the distance of inches and at full speed um, mm-hmm. and so players need to be uh, aware of that i think that there's a there's a little bit of confusion about right of way or something like that which it seems to be like uh an assumption that players poorly have that doesn't exist in the rules i mean pretty much anytime someone tells me they had right of way in polo i i'm like "Mm, it's not really a concept that exists in bike polo (laughs) correct for sure i'm kind of thinking is it possible to obstruct someone when i'm playing defense like if their team Um, has the ball can i obstruct someone so the the area well, that no, this... because it's called interference, Gavin. Oh, excuse yeah. me. Interfere. <laughs> Can I interfere with someone in this way? <laughs> well, actually. Uh, so where this gets a little bit weird is those periods of time where the ball's ambiguous about who has possession. So say, uh, you know, obviously my team say we're on offense. My buddy has the ball and they are being defended very, very aggressively. And they decide the best thing for them to do is to get rid of the ball. So they pass the ball to open space. Now, some things could happen with the next players in terms of uh, interaction. And that's where I think the rule gains a little bit of ambiguity. And it's left to the discretion of the ref a little bit because possession defines so much of this rule Mm -hmm. um and this is also one of those areas where i'm less interested in interference and more on um like the uh bike handling and and mallet handling plays yeah when when you're reaching around players and rubbing elbows and stuff interference is and the ball's like in the middle it's probably not an interference call if something's done wrong it's probably something else it's probably yeah it's probably like an extension or something yeah Yeah. that that is that is more often the case now um uh one of the things that comes up is uh someone's gonna go play for an open ball say like uh that my my buddy passed the ball out into open court so now it was last in possession by my team but now it's not necessarily near any player that has like an active controlled touch on the ball so you know it's possession in the sense of my team had it last with a controlled touch but but no one on my team is is truly near it now what happens if uh the other team's probably closer to the ball and as they ride up i manage to uh tangle my mallet with theirs so that they don't they don't touch the ball is that interference i don't think so uh and but you might get a different opinion on that if you're talking to one of the uh, European referees, or I mean, we uh, we would call that a classic poke check from from hockey. I right? think it's. I, I'm whispering it de- to myself, but I think it's yeah. just good defense. 
Yeah. But but I would say it depends how close to that ball that player is because if they're like three or four bike lengths away from the ball and I'm tangling their mallet up before they like clearly got in touch with it, then yeah, it's probably interference. Sure. I could go for that. Um, I, I, th- I think uh, this is one of those, you know, in, in that sort of situation, I might not give a penalty on that first call there. I might, I might issue a warning um, about that. Like if, if it's, if it's borderline, cause where it usually happens is a player on the boards. And so what you have is kind of a crossover between where did this, where am I stopping evaluating for interference and where am I now looking for pinning on the mm. boards. And I think that if I were to use my mallet to my use my mallet or even use my arm, yeah, like I'm holding it to where no one can pass me. If I'm using some part of my equipment, my or my body to prevent a player who doesn't have the ball from being able to leave where they're at, then then we're in territory where a whistle's got to get blown. Um and so, but but again, that right there, prob- that, I don't think that is interference. I think that is something that has that at one point when the ball has left the area of, of those two players, now I'm starting to look for something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the risk of getting bogged down in scenarios here, there's a play I do almost every time I play the game, um, and it seems when I read the rule to literally be obstruction. And I've never had it called. So let's say the ball goes into the corner uh-huh. and I'm chasing it. And I think I have a good chance of being first to the ball. In fact, I know I'm going to be first to the ball, but there's someone coming in to challenge me. A defender's coming in to challenge me, right? Uh-huh. An opponent, sorry. They're not defender yet. And so I kind of take a wide angle turn to block them from getting to the ball so that I can get it like more comfortably on my good side. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of carving out that space with my bike to make space for myself to turn around. Now, I'm definitely changing my direction in a sudden way to prevent them from getting the ball. Um, would that be considered interference? Because this is a play that happens all the time. Absolutely. That is a, that's a play. And that's not just uh, for those cursed with left-handedness. Um, mm. One day when we have a Gifted cure for left-handedness, left-handedness we'll, we'll, we'll still have this play in bipolar. <laughs> and that is um, what I just consider to be uh, like very like tactical planning with especially getting you know so much time can be lost on the board so spending less time on the boards and keeping your speed up by taking a more advantageous lane or approach on the ball is just good play i agree it's not interference and by the language of interference it's denying someone access to someone in possession of the ball Mm. um and so if the ball is free by taking that lane you're not denying anyone being able to challenge a possession because you yourself have not got position there and they are perfectly uh you know like able to you know like essentially when i see that i just see one person one one person allowed to be in front of someone yeah if you're riding towards the ball you don't you don't have an obligation to get out of their way so that they can also beat you to the ball you're allowed to just ride up and take the ball well, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things is that, you know, obviously the shortest uh, distance between two points is a straight line. And so it's easy to imagine, you know, a drag race between two players to get to a ball at point B. But often what really actually occurs is one, one player may take a longer route that makes the other player 
player's path a longer arc. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you're able to affect the shape of the play as it develops. And I don't think that's illegal play. I think that is perfectly good play. I think that's strategic play. I think that's smart play. I also think a lot of times it's safer play because sometimes those longer arcs are actually done at lower speed. Mm -hmm. um, And as opposed to just like people going breakneck speed, flexing their frames, just cranking it out, going top speed into the boards, which, you know, that turns out bad a lot of times. Uh, Especially if someone's right beside you on the other team. Absolutely. And so I I see that being a a better play a lot of times. And and I can think of a lot of times where I'm not the one that this is beneficial to. I think of a lot of times where someone has beat me on that line. And instead of boohooing about it, it's my job to think, okay, well, what next? You know, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I can't, I don't need to, you know, you know, petition the ref in that moment. It's not time to go and litigate about, well, it's not fair that, you know, he beat me to the boards by taking this weird route. No, I, it's time for me to think of something about what I got to do next. Now, if that yeah. player were to slam on the brakes in front of the other player before either of them got to the ball so that the second player on their team could recover that ball, that is clear cut uh, interference. Uh, yeah, I would, I would go for that. I think at that point you, you're, if you're not, if you're not making a play on the ball, if you're, that means you're, you're making a play on a player and that player is not in position in possession. That's, we are definitely talking about something different in that case. If I, if I take a weird path, but I'm not taking a weird path to collect the ball, I'm just taking a weird path to make it to where the closest player on the other team just can't go for the ball. Yeah. That's, that's heinous. That's, that's yeah. Joker clown shoes I, nonsense. I think I think of it kind of like in racing terms, where it's like if you're taking one turn and you're picking how you want to get between you and the ball, and you pick a line that happens to put you between the defender and the ball, and you just make that one move, that's kind of okay. But if if you you know make a move to the left and they go, oh, I'm now I'm going to get around you on the right, and then you move back to the right, now we're getting into that sort of this is interference. You're clearly changing your direction in an attempt just to block them. Yeah, and I think that, and, and like, as much as I think that that is a very clear-cut, like, totally bogus thing to do, like, you you need to be playing the ball. I think the one area where this gets ambiguous is where the ball is really not in motion. It says the ball's mm-hmm. on the boards. One of the things that happens a lot is I say the ball's on the on the on the right side of the boards. I'm right-handed. Uh, I manage to get my front wheel on the boards, so my mallet is basically right on the ball. And I'm being challenged from my non-drive side and left by another player. So I, I won that drag race, essentially, to the boards. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of locked in. I can't go anywhere. So I don't... I, I mean, I maybe I've already touched the ball, but I let my own teammate from behind me come and take possession away from me, and I just stay stationary. Now, what has happened there? I was the person in possession... And now I'm no longer the person in possession. But it wasn't necessarily that I passed the ball as much as I just kind of let my own teammate take it. Now, did I deny the person on the boards from challenging the person in possession? That's the question, right? So what point did the ball change from being in my possession and me having all the right in the world to defend it and all of a sudden being in the possession of another teammate of mine and I am already 
uh, blocking the nearest defender who used to be challenging me. So that's the question, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's like how answer, long can you linger there? Well, the answer to that is you're not definitely, moving. I'm not moving. And mm-hmm. elsewhere in the rules, you have the right to occupy the space that you're in. So the only way that would become interference is after my teammate takes uh, the, the ball for me and becomes the new person in possession of the ball. If I were to initiate some sort of movement that would prevent that challenger from switching to defending against me to defending against them. So what I look for in that situation, if it's another player is like, okay, their buddy came and took their ball, took the ball. Now the possession switched. And it just happens to be that the person who used to have possession is now in an advantageous screen or pick. Mm-hmm. I say thumbs up to that. That's good. That was strategic so, play. But thumbs down I, um, if like oh. they do some sort of hop to make it harder for them, the other defender to challenge the new possessor or like wheelie turn or something like that. Yeah. That would be bogus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this idea of legal screens and legal picks and these sorts of things is something that gets talked a lot about. I know for mm-hmm. myself, I'm a really competitive person and I used to coach basketball. So I think a lot about screens. When I hear screens being talked about by Paul, I'm like, oh, this is going to revolutionize the game. And I'm just so curious as to why when I watch, you know, the videos from Cordoba, for example, there's so few screens. I think I see more sugar use them once in a while, but oh. like really no other just clarify what a screen is yeah what is a screen we just before uh before we go on could gavin could you or liam just outline like specifically what a screen is for for the members of the audience that don't follow like basketball it's strategically using stationary players to block defenders so if my man is set up non-moving i might run with the ball around him so that my defender has a choice to go underneath the screen. So go on the other side of him to meet me on the other side, or they have to follow me around this player, in which case they're now behind me and I can get to the rim, uh, the basketball hoop, the net or whatever it is. And so here, here's the way I, here's the way I explain it to new players is that there's always one, there's always one screen that's happening on the court at any given moment. And it's being performed by the goal. The goal mm-hmm. is always a, is this inanimate object on the court that's always doing a screen, right? So if I ride behind the goal, a defender has the option. They can follow me behind the goal or they can take the route around the front of the goal. The goal is stationary and it has set a screen. Now, if you as a player want to do the same thing to the same effect somewhere else on the court, you're gonna have to behave like the goal. You're gonna need to be stationary. Or in bike polo, we allow for a moving screen as long as you're not changing direction changing speed you're just holding a straight line and so that's a little bit harder to understand sometimes in actual gameplay it's also a little harder to call as a referee but i think the stationary screen um, is a lot easier to understand when you just consider what the goal does uh, in terms of play if you if you ever have played bike polo and used the goal as an extra you know linemen sort of to kind of like pull a defender who's who's doing a forecheck on you off that is a screen and so if you think of it in those terms i think it's easier to know what you can do for your teammates in terms of setting a screen uh elsewhere on the mm-hmm. court right yeah, and that's, that's really a play example. that 
that play happens all the time, right? Players going behind the net to get a little bit of space. And most defenders now are smart enough to know if they chase you in behind there, you can just go around and have a break on the other side, an odd man advantage. Um, So, I mean, it seems like such a no-brainer to use screens in bike polo. And I just wonder why at the highest level at Worlds, it's just almost never used. Does anyone have any ideas about that? I'll say my personal opinion is uh, they are on the offensive half. Sometimes they're kind of a high risk um, situation, mostly because uh, one of the things that's advantageous a lot in bike polo is speed. And so a lot of times having all of your players at speed uh, is, is to your advantage. So having any one player not um, staying in move, saying moving kind of limits your options more than provides a lot of new options um and i think that we haven't necessarily explored all the areas on the court that are most um profitable for that sort of strategy yet i mean the game's still young there's still plenty to be discovered about you know what is really effective like um, lobster traps. <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I'm like, lobster trap is definitely the like that is totally future of the game. <laughs> no, no, no. Lo- lobster trap is definitely the rules lawyer. Well, no, like, it's it's, it's definitely, definitely preventing a defensive player from making a play on the ball. But you have the ball. You can't. But you're no not guilty one, of it. Yeah, all three of your teammates. Well, no. I feel like I feel like I have to explain it now for Elias. <laughs> all so, three so, of your teammates have the ball. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. You're okay, all in possession. All right, all right. So in, you, all you, yeah. Yeah. All, I, all I can think of with that. all I can think of when you say lobster trap is the the means bike polo team. Um, Nick Vaughn had this move where when he was next to someone, he would manage to pinch their front wheel between his front wheel and his frame, and he's like, "I'm not moving." The claw. And so <laughs> and it's like, "I'm not moving." They're they're tangled up in my bike. And it was such a it was such a trolly thing, but uh, if there ever was like a uh, you know maritime bird law bike polo team, it was definitely the means. So many of the rules uh, in the mm. game are defined around uh, rule trolls uh, from the <laughs> means. Think, <laughs> I think asking. the lobster trap clever. manages to somehow both be more legal than Nick Vaughn's maneuver and more trolly. <laughs> I can't. It's hundred percent more trolly. I, I I need to see this like on Instagram. I'm gonna. I'm oh, gonna I, here's a video. I am we'll gonna send, you the video. I, send me the video. I'm gonna. <laughs> but before I watch it, I'm gonna see if I can come up with what I think it is because I just, <laughs> I just <laughs> okay. love the name. I love a good name. Like I have something in bike mm-hmm. polo. I teach players called the hungry hungry hippo. And like I'll let your mind go wild trying to figure out what that is. You know, is that where you protect the ball with your front wheel and kind of like scoop it towards yourself? Like Holy you shit! Backwards? You figured out. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's where I put the ball in front of my wheel as bait, and then I do a small little wheelie, land my wheel in front of the ball, and then do like a slight little hop backwards to pull the ball back with my front That's wheel. It's a good name. Yeah, that is a good name. Oh, you got it on the uh, first try. Well, I guess Elias, I want to get back to this screen <laughs> conversation. So mm. I kind of have a difference of opinion from you. I'm going to be honest. I think okay, it's not necessarily it. speed, just being at a constant speed that gives you an advantage in bike polo. I think it's changing in speeds. 
that gives you an advantage in bike pull. So being able to go from stop to fast quickly, you can drop defenders, right? Even just if you're going one-on-one with someone and you have the ball and you slow down and then speed up again, oftentimes their reaction time is enough that you're by them at that point. Um, And I think that it's a misconception that because we're on bikes, we have to go as fast as we can. I think a lot of it comes from ice hockey as well. Um, But there's lots of instances in other sports, if you were to look at basketball, where change in direction is so much more important than max speed. Um, And I think that we really are just scratching the surface of strategy and I would love to see screens used more effectively by top teams. I just think that sometimes refing hasn't come far enough to keep up with that level of play and that use of the rules. I think if I've tried using a screen in a tournament, I've often been called for an interference call because it's just not at the level yet where people recognize what that play is and that you're trying to do something from a strategic standpoint that's within the rule set. They see, oh, he put his bike there and made that guy run into him. I did, but his head was down and my guy was standing still. And you get into that conversation and it doesn't go anywhere. And I think the risk reward and efficiency of that play drops a lot because a lot of time you're turning the ball over because there's a whistle. I mean, the perfect example of this, I think, is actually our our play. Um, I love telling the story, so I'm going to share it on the podcast. But um, we had, a, I think we got an advantage call or something. Like there was a reset in play where Gavin and I had the ball. Gavin had the ball, and we were playing Beehive Bays at, in Milwaukee, and I was the other player. And I forget how the reset went, but I somehow managed to slip behind both of their defenders, and they were doubling up on Gavin, not paying attention to me at all. And I just... Took kind of basically, I think I took my hands off my handlebars, like no change of speed, no change of direction, and Gavin was able to blow by me and get both of them in this like moving screen, um, which was immediately called obstruction. Uh, and I, I mean, not I'm not going to say who the refs were and like not you know, I I think it's understandable why people misconstrue those calls, especially you look at the Milwaukee the time that tournament happened. There's a lot of ambiguity in the rules. Um, and I think, but the, the frustrating thing was when I went over and asked the refs for clarification, there was a ref and their, their buddy, and they were both very well-respected players within the polo community. Um, and they answered simultaneously when I asked for clarification on the call. One of them said, it's because you stopped. And the other one said, it's because you didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then and, the other one said, I mean, stopped. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like this was pretty much the most textbook example of a moving screen that you can set legally. Like I'm not pedaling i'm not changing speed or direction i'm just coasting at like five kilometers an hour behind the defenders it's weird that i ended up getting between both defenders in their net but that obviously if you can do that it sets up a beautiful screen sure Um, and this is a call that it does get missed a lot of the time i think it's unfortunate that's part of why we wanted to have this this discussion to help clarify things uh you did a really good job of like narrating that play because i was able to actually visualize it in my head pretty well um and based on your description, I, I agree. I don't think that should have been a call. I think that um, you, you, you know, even if it was by chance, found yourself in a region of the court that when Gavin became free was extraordinarily advantageous for your team because you suddenly became this entity on the court that was difficult to... Uh, for them to maintain pursuit of Gavin as he moved towards the goal, if I understood mm-hmm. the narration correctly. And so, yeah, and if you're not changing 
direction, if you're holding a constant speed, um, then yeah, that shouldn't have been called. But yes, that sort of situation is why we want to talk about the rule. Because not just missed calls on the rule, but also uh, er erroneous calls on the rule are definitely a problem. And so, yeah, we should want to eliminate that ambiguity so that people um, can come up with more creative plays, be able to recognize those situations as they develop, and do what you did. I think what you did was, was a fair play um, based on your description. Um, so, if yeah, it happened I, that way. If it happened, exactly. Yeah, you, heard it, you heard it here first. I was right. <laughs> Confirmed. Elias, president of NAH at the time, has said that I was right. <laughs> that's not the purpose, though. I mean, even if that's just a hypothetical situation that we're laying out, I mean, a lot of times it would be called like an interference call just because it's incredibly hard, I think, as a ref. And part of the issue might be we only have one ref and they only see the court from one side. It's hard to call off ball. Like off ball stuff so hard to call. And who knows if Alex swooped in there at the last second because the guy was probably watching the mallet play on my mallet at the time from the defender. You know, and yeah. Yeah, that's just the challenge of the game. It's incredibly fast paced and hard to ref in that way. Well, I know, I'm, I'm not throwing any shade on the on the refs in this instance. Like it is it, it's a it's a very difficult call to make. It just I thought it was hilarious in that instance that I got like two different responses. Because it just highlights the ambiguity around the rule. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I think any rule, no matter how complex or simple, is going to suffer from uh, enforcement issues. And this kind of goes back to what I said at the very beginning. You know, whenever you start playing bike polo, you're not instantly good at bike polo, even if you know the rules. Um, just like when you start refing, you're not necessarily going to be good at refing. And people who are good at playing uh the the game aren't necessarily going to be the best at being a ref because being a ref has its own skill set associated with it um that has to be practiced uh and so you know I, you know there's lots of respected players who don't want to ref and they know their limits on that and there's a lot of players who are at different levels of experience but have a really great eye for what happens on the court and make really good refs or have the potential to be uh, really talented refs. So here it's just one of those things on, you know, enforcement of a rule can, can make people uneasy about a rule because this is definitely one of those rules that takes practice um, to do uh, properly, uh, to enforce properly. Yeah. So another so downside of the, oh, sorry, the moving yeah, another downside of the moving screenplay is that it often ends in, I mean, the defender, just smash it into your bike too right i think some people might shy away from these kind of screenplays because a lot of the time it does run the defender if their head is down right into the side of your bike and into you or your teammate sure and and you know what you know maybe in the future all screens are going to be stationary screens who knows mm -hmm. um uh, mm -hmm. you know the, the rule set does evolve over time and and if there's um if that helps reduce ambiguity about the rule or if there's uh, safety concerns that come from like a moving screen you know those things could end up changing um, but as they are today you know they exist and I, I think you do have a good point about like it just might not be worth the risk sometimes to to design this sort of play um, strategically because 
even if nothing goes wrong, there's a chance that there might be a whistle um, that stops the play while you have possession and you might get a bad call thrown against you. So it's definitely not something I would design an offense around um, in terms of like setting up. Alex, back to the drawing board. As as someone, I was going to say, as someone who has designed their offense around the moving screen, um, something I'll commonly do in tournament games where I know it's going to be a saucy thing and we're planning on like, I know I'm going to go to the screen, especially if I'm playing with Gavin. Um, I'll often just ask the ref before a match because they're approachable. You can go up before and say, I'll say, Hey, uh, what's your understanding of the obstruction rule? And if it's ahead of the time, like we're not doing this after a call or anything like that. It's just, I confirm with them that we're on the same page, sudden change of speed and direction. And I I'll, I'll tell the ref, like if I get between a defender and the net and I don't change my speed or direction, that's cool. Right. And usually they say, of course, and then if it comes up in a game, it's like they're a little more versed. Like I'm letting them know, hey, I'm going to go for this thing that I know is ambiguous in the rules and often gets miscalled so that they're not unprepared for when it happens. Um, I think what you're describing there is almost like an extra, I think it might be a little bit more three-dimensional chess. I think at that point you're, you're gaming the ref a little bit. There's nothing yeah, wrong definitely. with what you just described, by the way. Um, uh, but you, you, it's not designing around the screen as much as, uh, like, almost uh, foreshadowing or telegraphing to the ref a certain sort of court behavior that you're going to do. And in a certain sense, like, inception uh, of the idea of the moving screen into the ref's mind before they actually observe it. Um, and like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I would say um, be careful because some refs will respond negatively to that instead. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and you might end up having a, a backfire. You're going to get called on that every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or, they, or they because you've incepted that into their brain, now they're looking for it in places that completely different on the court and Mm -hmm. and 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 so so i you know i don't know if it's the best of plans (laughs) to have yeah Uh, i don't think it's i don't think it's wrong i definitely don't think communication with refs uh, especially prior to play or after play is bad i think that sometimes that those open lines of communication are really good i know for me personally i really appreciate um a lot of times if a player has like um an issue with a call i made if they come and talk with me after the match I, I usually I, like if that after the match is done. If I'm not immediately refing again, I'm happy to discuss a call I made or hey, this is what I saw, mm-hmm. right? And and from from based on what I saw, this is why I called it. If you know, if at a different angle I saw something different, maybe you know I wouldn't have called it that way, or maybe I would have made this call that you think I missed. Um, but you know, I'm happy to have those conversations. Same thing with the, the before match calls. I, you know, like uh, in terms of discussion, like I I enjoy speaking with captains of teams uh, before a match, um, and just you know, kind of talking through them and just like <laughs> I I watch enough games that I kind of also know players who are infamous for different things. So you know that, and you know that, that's not necessarily a good trait. Yeah. You should you, I should try to be. As 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 the least biased as possible, uh, going into a match, not anticipating certain behaviors, but you, as a, a fan of bike polo, as much as a participant in bike polo, uh, you know 
um, you enter any sort of space knowing a lot about the people who are on the court uh, for better mm -hmm. and for worse. Um, I just want to move on and see, you know, Elias, you came here and we thank you so much for coming on the show. I just want to know if there's anything else you want to talk about with us and to get out there into the polo world. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I kind of entered the foray into some uh, bike polo production stuff myself. Uh, right now I have two projects, uh, one which is complete but kind of on pause, which is I uh, made my own brand of... Uh, rotor guard the boot knife yes. uh that Ooh. was made how's it up, spelled it's canadian made it's made up in uh, east van uh <laughs> in working with uh, tall george up there uh it was really fun to get these made i had actually designed this rotor guard about two and a half years ago and i was going to manufacture them myself here out of a local tech shop but then it closed so i uh. just had the part design file for years until i was able to get in touch with someone who was able to get them manufactured. So I've got uh, a whole bunch of those, which I haven't sold yet. I haven't put them on the market yet, mostly because, you know, COVID happened and people weren't playing. So it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. I'm like, I'd wait until Bike Polo was picking up and there was a little bit more buzz before I dropped them on the market. But hey, if you're not already following um, Knives on Instagram and Facebook, you should. That's at uh, G-N-I-V-E. Z, uh, and uh, you can uh, see some photos of them and also see any updates about when those would be available in market. Uh, second thing I would kind of plug is that I'm also trying to get some more educational videos out and I've paused from making instructional videos like I have in the past because uh, we haven't been going to the courts as often and also because I wanted to uh, do something a little different so I've been uh, in my garage, building a small bike polo court diorama with a dry erase board so that I can produce reenactments of famous bike polo plays, calls, goals, oh, man. and uh, oh, do, awesome. do, do analysis and be able to move the camera <laughs> around the court and use, um, use existing footage out there from, uh, from big matches to kind of highlight some oh, of this, yeah. the small details of play that I think... Uh, get kind of lost in the larger chaos of the court. So, so that's something to look forward to. I've actually built most of the court. Um, I'm seeing if I can get a buddy of mine to 3D print me some little bike polo player effigies that I can put magnets mm -hmm. on the bottoms of. So uh, when they're on the on the court, I can make them actually look like little bike pole players. Right now, they're just little gonna be... balsa balsa wood triangles on. It's going to be you know? awesome. So, so that's 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 what's that's what's new with me. That's how I've been focusing some of my polo energy lately uh, with some arts, arts, arts and crafts and uh, DIY stuff. That's incredibly uh, constructive. That's so <laughs> one cool. One of my like, favorite, uh, one of my favorite things about the boot, the boot knife is it's available in any color as long as it's purple. Yes. <laughs> yes. We, we had a talk about, you know, oh, you can do silver or black so it matches, you know, anyone's bike. And I'm like, nah, man, let's, let's just so, lean into So it into looks this. like every other rotor guard? Yeah, so <laughs> I, just, I just leaned into purple. Nah. <laughs> you know what? Like, now, rotor guards are like one the of those. Way to sanitizing go. stuff too, right? Yeah, so I eventually I want to be able to do my own home anodization, but, I, but the manufacturer for these rotor guards uh, offered an in-shop uh, dis discount since we were making them through there, and that's just too much to pass up on it was yeah, too easy absolutely yeah 
Mm. Rotor guards are one of those pieces of a bike that, especially for bike pull, are really hard to get because, like, it's not they're not on other bikes. You know, you can't go um, to the bike shop and pick one up. Every other part of the bike yeah. you can get, even a mallet, like you can make one if you have to. And mm-hmm. but a rotor guard, you can't make it. You most people can't make it at least. Uh, the other thing that I'm uh, hopefully eventually once, uh, you know, I, I see if I start seeing that the game uh, and the technology and equipment starts going towards more uh, front through axle, I have a through axle uh, rotor guard design. Um, oh, sweet. Because a lot more oh, dang. bike forks are moving away from the traditional Hayes IS tab to mm-hmm. the post um uh, tab for the uh, for the brake caliper. So the kind of traditional um, rotor guard design that bolts on with the brake is going to become less and less applicable to bike technology as 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 it kind of enters into bike polo, as it is doing right now with mountain bikes, road bikes, and stuff like that. I, I, I anticipate that change. Uh, well, I will road. definitely hit you up for that if I ever follow through on what I've been promising for years and build a custom bike. <laughs> Brilliant. Hey, compare notes with me. I, I, I literally, so I built, I built a polo bike back in 2016 at, at the, um, at UBI out in Portland. Um, and I finished that bike this year. It took four years to build this bike. Oh, wow. And it's a, it's a 650 B with a through axle in the front. And the, the fork I built with um, old field cycles down in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, Sweet. and it's a it's a it's a beauty. Um, but I, uh, it was funny. I actually just found. I've been looking for it for four years. I found the <laughs> paper draft drawings of this bike frame from before oh, I actually had it brazed uh, together. So it's uh, something I'm gonna probably frame up on the wall because I'm <laughs> really proud of. So, but yeah, if you ever wanna if you ever wanna talk shop on. Uh, bike design and geometry hit me up i love to, i love nerding out about that sort this, of thing this sounds like a follow-up episode that we'll have to have elias on talking about polo <laughs> geometry i have opinions <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on the show um yeah thank you been, i mean i've been alluding to doing an obstruction episode for a long time and i'm really glad we could get uh you on for it because rather than just me talking about how I don't think what I do is obstruction. Uh, it's nice to have someone <laughs> that actually knows what they're talking about on the show. Or I can just fake t- that I know it really, really strong. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, no, this is a great conversation. It's also, it's great to hear uh, voices from the Poloverse. Um, clearly, uh, it's 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 great that you guys are putting together a podcast right now. I think I think people really appreciate really appreciate that. Well, shout out to the the Sandy Fuego guys that did that first. Uh, that like they did a polo podcast where I think the one guy sat down with his roommate that didn't know anything about bike polo and they just like watched a game and talked about it. Um, that definitely, <laughs> I I saw that. It also the thumbnail for that video was of your face, Elias, and oh, it took me it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that you were not in fact on the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. I was like, oh, sweet, Elias is a polo podcast. I'm definitely subscribing to this. Oh, that's and, fun. Wait, that wasn't Elias? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I just, I, and I actually, <laughs> that, watching that, I was like, okay, I, if, if, if my reaction to someone making a polo podcast was how awesome this was, I'm like, maybe we should bite the bullet and actually make one. Oh, oh man, describing bike polo to a non-bike polo 
person like watching a game and then like explaining like oh why did that just happen has to be like that chapter of the first harry potter book where they're like explaining <laughs> the rules of quidditch um <laughs> or yeah. anyone talking about australian rules football uh you know <laughs> it's just like yeah. most Cal- calvin ballish moment <laughs> in uh in a descriptive language so but yeah hey this is this is a this is a blast I'm, I'm glad you guys invited me to come uh talk about bike polo it's it's uh it's good it's good thank you so much for coming well, on the episode now we finally really had you on a it. podcast <laughs> yeah yeah thank you so much anytime all right well alex what do you think do you understand obstruction now oh i, I feel like i just got put on the spot <laughs> um I've all look. I have always understood obstruction. Um, it's just the rest of the community that hasn't understood it around. Oh, so this was more of a PSA. My hypothesis. <laughs> my yeah. hypothesis is that Alex understands obstruction. He just doesn't understand what he's doing on the court. <laughs> right. That's that's maybe fair. So um, he imagines one... that he's following the rules perfectly, but it's only in his own mind, you know. But maybe not from the rest <laughs> perspective. Something I will say when going through the rules in prep for this episode, I found a, it, it's not a formatting error, but it, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, they list like specific infractions and the, the way the old rules got formatted, it would have like the rule number. So like 3.1.1.2, and then it would list something. And there's a specific rule infraction that got added in 2014. Um, it's for T-boning. But the way that everything's abbreviated, it's like 8.4-T-boning. So when you scroll through the rule book, it looks like a boning penalty. And I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> no boning on the court. Definitely not. That's got to be it. <laughs> T, T or otherwise. <laughs> All right. Well, this episode's getting pretty long. What do we got to finish it off? Well, I think it's time for the mailbag, isn't it? Mm, of course. Mailbag. Mailbag. All right, so we got two emails this week to talk about. Uh, the first one comes from our previous guest, Robbie Boards from Vancouver, and he writes, Hey, just listen to episode five. It was very interesting. Flats versus clips. Mm, good one. But what I really like to be is back on your show as a special guest and talk about why bike polo is not an Olympic sport or even an X game sport. You pointed out a lot of good points, but you miss a lot, and that is the logistics side of it and the fan base side, and the big one is the gender side of it, and what happens if and when it does become a real sport. Then you have the branding side of things. What happened? Okay, some fuck here. I spilled honey on my laptop. Anyways, uh, branding (laughs) will be a big deal. (laughs) And what's going to happen when a patent starts flying around for a Donata or a Roger uh, mallet? They're going to lose out, or someone go to business because they can't afford $5,000 for a patent. Because when CCM or somebody patents a head or a mallet, you're all fucked. But then you come back to what we sort of talk about and the new players, and that brings you into the fan base side of it. Is there enough fans and enough new players to get that fan base to be broadcast on like CBS or a global network? Anyway, that's my two cents. It would be nice to talk about this because it interested me very much. Well, thank you, Robbie. I am so sad that I missed the Robbie episode. It was a great interview, man. <laughs> it was. I would have. I would have loved interview. to have chatted with him. I agree with him. He's really a true legend. I was going to say, okay, yeah, sorry, I agree yeah. with what he has to say. You know, when you bring in big global uh, viewership and, you know, the Olympic stuff, you're right. Like the sponsorship and the and the capitalistic side of things will come in. And 
to be honest, I think that's what personally I appreciate about bike polo is it's, it's really, it doesn't have anything to do with that sort of, you know, capitalism sports model. And, um, I yeah. mean, obviously we got people like Donata and, and people that are making goods, but, but the, but they're doing this for the good of the sport. They're not doing it to make money, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Well, and we got people like Elias even doing his or doing their, uh, rotor guards and things. And I think it's, it's great that we kind of have a, a cottage industry to a certain extent within polo. And, um, I mean, I think that's the, the fear of the whole, uh, community versus competitive aspect is that if things grow to the point that it gets too competitive, uh, you know, some of the community things I think could be at risk. I don't think the way patent laws work that people would be pushed out of, of bike polo. Um, I'm, I'm certain, I'm pretty sure if people were manufacturing stuff, they would be, they'd still be okay to keep doing that. But, uh, you know, it would definitely introduce if polo ever were to become an Olympic sport or an X game or to be org, the level of organization required to be a part of a larger organization like that would definitely, we would have, we would have to lose aspects of the community, at least within those events that I don't think a lot of people want to lose. And I mean, that was the kind of the heart and soul of our discussion yeah. on it. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I want to point out something that I think, you know, doesn't get talked about enough. And that's that when bike pool becomes an Olympic sport, the CBC is going to need broadcasters, play by play, people to commentate on the sport. And they're going to want Canadians, you know, they're going to want people that oh not God. only have experience producing audio content, but also know the game. And so in the future, CBC producers listening, I think that the three Shondell of us was fantastic candidates. during the Professional Hardcore Polo Association. <laughs> That's true. She was great. I highly she recommend her. <laughs> okay. All right. Next email. I obviously didn't sleep enough last night. Um, also, sleep. sorry, just one quick note. Um, I hope your keyboard's all right, Robbie. I would definitely put that in rice. <laughs> mm, yeah. Burn. Okay. Next email. I would love to hear what was going on with this honey. <laughs> This next email is from Andrew from India, and he writes, Hi, NorthsidePoloPodcast at gmail.com. I am Andrew, web development manager, and that I work with 80-plus experienced IT professionals who are into web design development, e-commerce development, app development, iOS, and Android. If you are interested, then I can send you our list, company information, and a reasonable quotation with the sample. Our pricing is extremely reasonable. Thanks and regards, Andrew. Note, it would be good if you can share your mobile number and we can discuss in detail. What do you guys have to say about that? I just want to say... Northside's bike polo app (laughs) incoming. I just want to say thank you to Andrew for reaching out all the way from India and really taking the time to offer services for the podcast. We actually really appreciate it. And it's great to know that we have, you know, like listeners all around the world, (laughs) even in India, there's people listening to our podcast and thinking so much of it, they want to get into business with us. That's incredible. This, this sets a dangerous precedent that anyone that sends us a business opportunity email is going to get read out <laughs> on the podcast, which could get very dangerous depending upon the offers that come I mean, in. I could also read... To be honest, like... I could read the Google security verification emails that we get because people try to log into our, uh, our account. But I don't think listeners really care about those. I think those are... No, I think those are just us logging in from different devices that sends those emails. Yeah, but Instagram I mean, has said be, there's a new login, Northside's Polo yeah. Podcast, Mac yeah, OX, yeah. OS X Chrome. <laughs> the thing I want to say, though, is that we are now starting to get so many emails 
to our podcast that we actually don't have time to read them all on the air, which is both a great problem and a terrible problem. So if you're writing in, we're going to still try to read most of them. But if your email is not read on the podcast, we promise that we will email you back and have a little conversation with you. So keep sending them in. Keep writing your hot takes. We want to hear from you. Email us at northsidepolopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone that's reached out. Yes. Yeah, we do read them, just not yeah. always on the air. This It's worth noting, this was a problem when we started talking about the emails. Are we going to have time to read them all? And I was like, that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we've already got there. So, All right. I guess that's a good good problem. Well, to wrap up this episode, uh, we have an excellent beer point, which is brought to us by our guest, Elias he shared a little bit of Ottawa history that he experienced at Turducken. Let's listen. Also brought to us by the, the legacy that is Mount. Yes, that's correct. All right. So, so, so the Ottawa story that I know is from years ago um, at Turducken down in, oh, in, no. in, uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Now, Tur- Turducken... <laughs> is the Mad Max of all bike polo tournaments where honestly, after having this long conversation about rules, it seems trivial when talking about turducking because it is <laughs> pure anarchy. Like if something is goes in the goal and it was like off a shuffle or just like at one time, like someone punched the ball into the goal and it counted because it was cool. That Like that was the only thing that mattered that it was cool. Um, and like turducking is the only tournament where fighting is legal, but you must fight on your bike. And if, you dab you lost the fight i've only oh seen God. like three fights ever in all the years i went to turducken which do you have to you drop know, in the hockey gloves? numbers is low but it, in bike polo numbers it's like all all it's like 75 percent of the fights that have happened in bike polo <laughs> anyway so uh oh gosh i want to say this is like turducken seven or turducken six perhaps um in richmond one of the the, the key features of turducken is that at the end of the tournament there's a big family meal hence the name turducken and then like over the years like they also like made it more like veggie and vegan friendly and they had like a tofurkin and all this stuff it, you know it's a big family meal so it's one of the coolest things about that tournament is like this big bonding thing at the end and for many years they didn't like have it catered they're like families like the players in Richmond, their their families actually made all the food. Wow. And so it was this really very special thing. And so at Turducken, I want to say it's, it was Turducken 6, uh, we were tournaments done. All the bike polo that's going to happen has already occurred. <laughs> and so this is, uh, you know, adjacent to bike polo uh, in a story sense. It's, it's, it's the characters of Mike Polo. And uh, all the Ottawa guys are just fucking wrecked so drunk <laughs> in, like, the corner of the court. As, as, and, as you do. And Sean McCormick, who is kind of, like, head honcho of, of Richmond Bike Polo. He's, like, a real – he's a great guy. Uh, you know, hosted so many tournaments. Uh, if you know him, he's one of the most reliable people in all of Mike Polo. He's also, like – six foot four and just a beast of a human being like the <laughs> like the last bouncer you would ever want to talk back to essentially and during the oh, prize no. during the prize ceremony uh he had like handed out like all these prizes and he still had some prizes left over 
And so he kind of improvs like, hey, uh, you know, I got some prizes to give away, if, you know, that didn't belong to any particular like MVP or first place to third place sort of thing. So I think he said something like anyone who does the coolest trick can get a can get a prize. And Shelly from New York did like some sort of like pirouette to like a cartwheel sort of thing. And it was funny, uh, which was good. And he's like, all right, here you go. And then out of nowhere, uh, one of the Ottawa guys, like, oh, no. like flew flew into the the center of the circle and like hit the prize crate, and it like slid across the court, and like all the the prizes went everywhere, and the crate actually broke my toe. I didn't oh, know this damn. until like the next day. Uh, I I just like I'm like oh that hurt my foot, and then later I'm like oh my toe is broke. <laughs> damn. Um, <laughs> but uh, but in the moment I didn't know that. And so Sean's like, okay, okay, someone's had enough. And he starts going into the kind of, like, wrap-up of the tournament where, you, you know, you're, like, thanking everyone for showing up, making an announcement about, like, hey, make sure you walk around the court and pick up any trash. You know, the, the normal sort of, like, tournament organizer stuff. Mm-hmm. And he... <laughs> um, and uh, I, I wish I remembered who it was from Ottawa, but like Maybe it's gets down, if you don't. <laughs> gets down into like kind of like a three-point football stance, like hand on the ground, and he like charged and he just hits the food table with all the like food that people hadn't hadn't had, and he knocks it. It just spills all over the the, the court. And it's a, it's a total party foul. For sure. It's like no one laughs at all. Everyone is horrified because like it's clearly like food that like the families were going to take home and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So everyone's just like, oh, man. And Sean McCormick, um, giant Sean McCormick, walks over, like stomps, like Shrek style over and kicks the dude in the ass so hard he went into the air like a cartoon <laughs> and it was fucking insane. I've never seen someone lifted off the ground by any sort of oh, melee no. attack, but it happened anyway. Sean McCormick, the story's not done. <laughs> Sean McCormick immediately, like he's like, I cannot be distracted by this asshole right now. I can't. And so he like snaps his fingers, kind of like shakes it off and goes immediately back to per- being professional. He's like, <laughs> All right, where was I? Oh, yes. You know, hey, thank you for coming oh, out. God. We appreciate everyone's contributions to this year's tournament. And it was, you know, I think our best one ever. He does his whole rap, and then he's done. And so naturally what happens after this sort of thing is, like, everyone is on the court, and they're kind of giving their hugs and shaking hands. I'm doing the same thing. My toe hurts. I don't know it's broken yet. <laughs> and there's just food and all over the ground? There's food all over the ground. People are, <laughs> people are stepping in to kind of help clean it up and stuff like that. And me, I'm actually looking for Sean McCormick because, you know, I love the guy. I think he's one of the best people I ever met in bike polo. And I just want to go give him a hug. But I, I, my eyes scan across the horizon and I see Sean, and I see Sean's eyes are scanning across the horizon, and he sees Ottawa in the corner. Fuck. And, and so, and so uh, I was like, oh, shit. And so, like, Sean just walks over to the corner, and, um, like, all the Ottawa players just kind of part, like, see for Moses. <laughs> and then Sean just 
punches the dude in the face just once, <laughs> just square in the face, uh, right on the nose. And Sean's fist is the size of this guy's face. I mean, Sean is a gigantic guy. And then he just, just one punch, that's all it was. And he's like, all right, we're good. And he just walks away. Like, that was it. That's all it had to do to resolve it. Then he was totally good with everyone from Ottawa, but he just, like, you knew you fucked up when your boys, like, clear the path so you can get the punch that you, you've earned. And so he had to ride all the way back from Richmond, Virginia, uh, in a crowded-ass van to Ottawa with a punch face. And uh, that was kind of my introduction to Ottawa. I don't think I'd met anyone from Ottawa prior to that. So I'm like, is this what, like, the mouth of my hand folks are like what's going on here i was yeah, still well i think things have changed <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah that was that was that's that's my um my ottawa uh uh richmond turducken story and <laughs> i've i've heard this story told from other viewpoints too so i know my memory on this is pretty <laughs> yeah. good uh it's, it's a story the, the yeah. nyc polo podcast actually Discuss this same event. <laughs> oh, uh, shit. If you ever want to yeah, go into their archives, so, we'll definitely. Yeah, and so so you can so there can be a certain degree of uh, the Rashomon effect in uh, in in getting uh, the full story. Brody, there. <laughs> so. I've definitely heard this from other perspectives, and I think when I first started playing, I may have even heard it from some of the Valley Boys, but it sounded much different coming from. Brody them. definitely <laughs> told me this story like two weeks ago, and he said that he, like the yeah. dude jumps the table. And crashed, and then as soon as he got up, just got punched out right then and there. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I, you know, hearing this now, your, you know, your take on it sounds a lot more likely. Um, um, but you know, I was just like in awe that that was our contribution to Turducken. Literally kicked into. <laughs> oh the yeah, air. sorry, I yeah. forgot about the Literally kick. Yeah, okay, he was kicked the right there. Yeah. Like it, it, like, like he was stumbling on like all fours, like kind yeah. of like doing like a bear crawl type position and Sean's foot hit his ass and he went into the air. I'm picturing like team rocket style. Like that was a KO in Smash Bros. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like he turned into a little star in the sky. I mean, like it was incredible. Yeah. So that's, thank you so much for that story. That's part of the lore of the Mouth of Mayhem legacy. We We don't have much, but we got that. I'm glad I can contribute that to the uh, to the the greater oral history of my yes, <laughs> That player still plays occasionally too. So, really? yeah. and you know what? At most tournaments, he's not the most rowdy person. To be honest with you. Wait, who is it? Uh, we're not going to say it so, on the pod. So, okay. you'll, you'll have to you'll have to stay around for next week when we may or may not reveal who. Oh, I think I know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to reach the fifty dollar a week Patreon level for us to reveal. No, which, this is uh, already for the Patreon. <laughs> the names. This of is the extra clip. story. Yeah, but you got to oh, be like the top tier of Patreon tier, yeah, to get the yeah. name. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone, that made it all the way through the episode to the end. You were paid off big time with that beer point story. I wouldn't believe it happened if I hadn't heard it from so many people. Anyways, all that's left to say is email us at the Northside Polo Podcast at gmail.com, Northside Polo Podcast at gmail.com. We appreciate you all so much for listening and sending your emails in. We love all of you. Thank you so much on behalf of myself, Liam, and Alex. Keep your rubber side down, and I'll see you on the court.